Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now. Here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to chat about Florence Nightingale, the founder of modern nursing. Nightingale revolutionised healthcare due to the work that she did as a nurse before, really, the profession even properly existed. And she's an absolutely fascinating figure, a pioneering woman who left behind a a life of wealth and easy privilege to instead get her hands dirty and devote herself to the care and the service of others. Famously, Nightingale cared for soldiers that were wounded during the Crimean War in the 1850s. And in doing this, she advocated for radical change when it came to the way that patients were treated in hospitals, both military and civilian. Agitating for reform uh, to everything from the cleanliness of medical facilities all the way through to their administrative oversight and efficiency, Nightingale completely changed the ways that hospitals and other medical institutions operate, even through to this very day. After returning from the the Crimean War, Nightingale uh, successfully lobbied the British authorities to uh, specifically and formally train nurses, which led to a worldwide revolution in the way that the healthcare industry operated. And so much of what we take for granted in the healthcare systems we enjoy today, things like, you know, clean hospitals, uh, efficient administration, most of the time anyway, Uh, even simple things like sanitation, drainage. These were all completely foreign concepts to healthcare pre-Nightingale, but she came along, she changed all that and changed a lot more, as we'll talk about. Nightingale also made uh, significant contributions in changing the role of women in the 19th century, 19th century society in Western Europe, uh, opening up new career paths for women in establishing nursing schools. And in addition to this, you, you... You're never going to guess this one. You you will not see this one coming, right? Florence Nightingale was also a trailblazer in the world of visual representation of data. 
Oh, yes. We'll get into that and so much more. There is so much to talk about when it comes to this incredible woman. I obviously have immense respect for nurses. My mum was one uh, when she was working. Uh, they work so hard and uh, they don't get either the, the recognition or the money that they so richly deserve. And uh, as, as the son of a nurse, it was interesting to learn about the origins uh, of the profession and uh, specifically how one person in particular was so instrumental in making nursing what it is today. Alert listeners, Gabriella Mitchell, Tony Ziegel, and the man, the myth, the legend, Eric Whedon, all wrote in to suggest I get across the uh, the tale of Florence Nightingale. And honestly, it was a pleasure to do so. I tell you what. So thanks uh, thanks very much for getting, getting in touch with you a lot. But a lot to get across today, as ever. So let's get straight into it here. Let's have a chat about the life and times of the lady with the lamp, Florence Nightingale. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 12th of May, 1820, to the city of... Florence in uh, in modern day Italy, of course. Although back then uh, it was found in the Grand Duchy of Tuscany, uh, unified Italy actually didn't exist at the time that she was born, and uh, she was indeed Florence Nightingale was indeed named after the city in which she was born. So it's very lucky that her parents happened to be in Florence uh, during their travels across Italy uh, when when their daughter came along, um, because it. Could have been a lot worse. She, I don't know. It's lucky that she wasn't born a little further to the southeast in uh, in the Italian town of Bastardo, or uh, or perhaps even worse, just outside Rome in the village known as Arsoli. Instead, no, born in Florence, she ended up with uh, with quite a pretty name. And uh, Nightingale, she she was born into a very prosperous British family. Her her parents, uh, William Edward Nightingale and his wife Frances Nightingale, they were a very rich couple. They owned a grand estate back in Britain, and it's there that Nightingale was raised once her family returned home in 1821. And uh, I'm happy to say her parents seem to have been very progressive indeed, particularly for wealthy landowners, and uh, her father in particular, because his father, Nightingale's grandfather, was a steadfast abolitionist, um, and Nightingale's old man, were he, as a result of being raised in what must have been a very progressive household, he had some very dangerously forward-thinking ideas about the rights of women in, uh, in 19th century uh, society, uh, specifically that, you know, women should have them, have rights in the first place. And he brought up his two daughters to be very well-educated, free-thinking, and as independent as society permitted them to be at the time. And even at a young age, Nightingale demonstrated a voracious intellect, and she took to the education her family offered like a duck to water. Uh, She got into literature, mathematics, philosophy, languages, uh, even history. Good luck getting anywhere with that, Florence, old mate. But look, Nightingale, she got across it all, Um, but she had a particular thing for data and statistics, which, as I've sort of hinted at, we will talk more about as we continue her story. But when it came to her uh, profession, in her late teenage years, Nightingale claimed to have received a divine calling to give her life over to aid others. And so she began to educate herself as what we would know today as a nurse. Now, this was quite a thing for her to do. It may not seem all that remarkable to us these days, a young woman going off to become a nurse, but but almost 200 years ago, this was just not the done thing, especially amongst rich, British, almost upper-class young women. In fact, it brought it on scandalous. Nightingale came from a rich family with a grand estate, and now she wanted to go and get her hands all dirty around the sick and the dying? Don't they have people for that? Nurses, as we as we think of them now, they didn't really exist before Nightingale, as, as you'll discover. 
In Europe for hundreds of years, the sick and the dying, they'd been ministered to by monks and nuns uh, in monasteries and convents. And, and even then, not always, especially in Protestant areas, because as you may know, Protestants aren't, uh, aren't quite as gung-ho for monks and nuns as Catholics are. And uh, as their monasteries and convents were shuttered across Europe, the sick had to more or less just kind of look after themselves in many instances. There were hospitals, sure, but uh, these hospitals would more or less just a place for people to go to die. Um, there wasn't a formalised system of nurses taking care of people in them. It's a, Look, I know this is a bit of an oversimplification, but in broad strokes, there just wasn't any such thing as nursing as we think of it today when Nightingale was still a youngster. Anyway, Nightingale's family strenuously disapproved of her decision to get into uh, into the, into the medical field. Um, what was deemed to be, you know, a fitting uh, a, a fitting future for her as a young a young woman of means was to become a wife and a mother, and that wasn't something that Nightingale seemed particularly interested in. And so she stuck to her guns. She was a tenacious young bugger. And into the 1840s, she bent her considerable intellect towards learning as much as she could about caring for people who were ill or injured or dying. She travelled around Europe and Northern Africa, very much a free spirit, not getting, uh, not getting much in the way of approval from her parents and family for her lifestyle and her choices. And on top of this, she also resisted the efforts of various suitors and didn't seem to be particularly interested in settling down as a wife and a mother at all, as her family would obviously have preferred. In fact, she didn't get married for her entire life. Uh, she didn't seem to have much time for, uh, for, for relationships like that. Instead, she's off around the world visiting Greece, Egypt, continuing to learn more about nursing and medical practices from the people that she came across. And this brings us to 1850, a very important year in Nightingale's life, because it was then, and again, uh, the next year in 1851, that she spent some time at the Kaiserswerth Institution of Protestant Deaconesses in the German city of Dusseldorf. I've already talked a little bit about what nursing looked like before Nightingale. Usually, religious orders, more often than not made up of women, would be responsible for looking after the sick. Well, despite not being ordained as a nun or anything similar, but still following this divine calling, Nightingale spent some time in Kaiserswerth learning as much as she could about practical nursing at this institution, which essentially was a rudimentary training hospital. Healthcare looked very, very different in the early 19th century. It would be shocking for us to see today, full of ignorance of even the most basic aspects of medicine and hygiene. We talked about this a little bit, or no, a lot bit really, in episode 91, Ignaz Semmelweis, get across it. But all the same, by the time we get to the mid-18th, mid-19th century, Things aren't that much better. And while Nightingale was able to combine the theoretical knowledge that she already had, um, sorry, that is her knowledge about theory, not knowledge that was only theorised to exist, she was able to combine this with the practical knowledge she gained uh, in this institute in, D in Dusseldorf, we're still a long, long way away from the medical profession and the healthcare systems that we, uh, we, we really take for granted today in the 21st century. And Nightingale's experiences in Dusseldorf would uh, would prove to shape not just her life and her career, but the development of modern nursing, as you'll see. Because here in 1851, Nightingale, she's only getting started. She returned to Britain and published um, much of what she'd learnt anonymously, uh, and then began her career as an actual factual nurse in practice. In 1853, her extensive family connections enabled her to, uh, to obtain the position of superintendent 
for the London Institution for Sick Gentlewomen in Distressed Circumstances. Quite a name. Uh, And I'll tell you this, she did a very bloody good job looking after the place. Her extensive understandings of the latest developments in in medical care improved the conditions of this hospital for these poor gentlewomen in distressed circumstances. And the patients, they received better treatment than ever. The staff who worked there received better training than ever. And Nightingale was proving that the time and the effort that she'd put into understanding nursing was in fact worth it. Now, we'll talk about the changes that she made to hospital hospital environments and, and the standards of nursing in due course. But suffice to say that thanks to people like Nightingale, hospitals were now beginning their transformation from unhygienic, dangerous, disease-ridden places to clean, organised, and, well, and still disease-ridden places. Obviously, they've still got the diseases. That's kind of the point of a hospital. But look, Nightingale, she was beginning her trajectory to becoming one of the most important figures in the history of modern medicine and didn't remain at this institution in London for long. She decided that her knowledge and her skills would be better put to use elsewhere. And this was because of a conflict that broke out in 1853, a conflict that was covered extensively by the newspapers and the media back in London where where Nightingale was working. In 1853, Nightingale read about the horrific conditions suffered by the British soldiers wounded while fighting the Crimean War, and she decided to do something about it. The Crimean War, it broke out in 1853 when the Ottomans declared war on Russia, backed up by their French and British allies. The Ottomans were in decline, and Russia, ever hungry for expansion, nothing has changed there, they were muscling in on the Ottoman sphere of influence. Now, there were there were other factors that contributed to the tensions that led to the outbreak of the Crimean War. There was religious strife, there were diplomatic stouches, there were various claims of suzerainty, there was all sorts of stuff. But the bottom line was that when war broke out between the Turks and the Russians, concerned about about maintaining the balance of power throughout Europe, some of the other powers jumped in, namely France and Britain, to back up the Turks. Russia was seeking to control the Black Sea and increase its political power in the Balkans, um, ideas that its Turkish, French and British enemies didn't think all that much of. And while fighting took place all around Europe, from the Balkans all the way to the Baltic, most of the fighting took place in Crimea, the Black Sea Peninsula that that, that the Russians annexed 10 years ago in 2014, although it is still internationally recognised as part of Ukraine. The Crimean War is interesting for many, many reasons. It was the first war to feature technological advancements, or the first major war, I should say, to feature technological advancements like railways and telegraphs. Uh, But it was also notable for its complete mismanagement by more or less everyone concerned. Add to this the fact that the fighting was brutal and deadly, hundreds of thousands of deaths. You won't be surprised to learn that the newspaper stories telling of the war uh, back in places like Britain were not very positive at all. And specifically when it came to Nightingale, she was shocked to hear about just how many people were dying, not in the fighting, but afterwards in the military hospitals that had been set up to treat the, the, the injured and the wounded. And so when she read about what these poor people were going through with filthy, overcrowded medical hospitals only contributing to the, uh, to the overall death toll, she decided she wanted to do something about it. And so in 1854, she packed her bags and she headed east personally to get it all sorted out. Now, her ability to do this came from her privilege as, uh, you know, as the daughter of a very wealthy family. She had a generous allowance from her family that enabled her to pursue her passions like this. 
And her family connections, again, were in absolutely instrumental in making sure that she was able to uh, to do the things she wanted to do. She was uh, she was personal friends with the British Secretary of War, Sidney Herbert, and so was able to muster up and travel with a group of nurses uh, with the approval and financial support of the British government. Uh, interestingly, uh, in the lead up to this taking place, the story goes that um, Nightingale wrote to Herbert, uh, asking, requesting um, uh, the the opportunity to go over and, and help treat the the sick and the wounded over in Crimea or in in Constantinople, as we'll talk about. Um, at exactly the same time that Herbert himself, the Secretary of War, wrote to Nightingale requesting her aid. So more or less everyone was on board with the idea there. The Post is going back and forth delivering letters that essentially are driving at exactly the same thing at the same time. In any case, Nightingale, with the, with the approval and the, and the funding of the British, she travelled with just under 40 nurses to the town of Skutari, uh, modern-day Uskudar, uh, in the Turkish city of Istanbul, although back then it was called uh, Constantinople, of course. And it was there, not in Crimea, it was there in, in Scutari at the Salimia barracks. She was horrified by what she saw. These barracks had been turned into a military hospital and inside this hospital, injured soldiers were in disgusting conditions, more or less just being left to die on the floor by the powers that be whose focus was well and truly elsewhere. There was overcrowding, there were shortages of equipment and supplies, there was widespread infection and disease. And the death rate for those who were sent to this military hospital was estimated to be about 40%. This is just an incredible number. For every 10 injured soldiers that didn't die on the battlefield, right, only six would make it out of hospital. And honestly, the death rate is probably higher. Um, it was, it's very possible that the, the British actually played it down for you know, propagandistic purposes. And, and the worst thing about this statistic is most of the soldiers that were in these military hospitals, they didn't even die of their wounds. They didn't die of the wounds they suffered on the battlefield. They died of cholera or of typhus or of dysentery. They died of diseases that were, that were brought on by the, the, the poor care and the even worse sanitation and hygiene in these facilities that they were dumped into. But Nightingale, she's about to change all that. She rolled up her sleeves and she, with her colleagues, got stuck into solving these problems. Now, the first issue, the first problem she had to deal with was the doctors. They were not very receptive to Nightingale and her colleagues. They didn't work along. They didn't want to work along a bunch of women. Ugh, gross. I mean, what are they worried about? They're worried about girl germs because the, the germ theory of disease isn't even, even a proper thing yet. So are they, are they worried about girl miasma? Come on, boys. Buddy, get a grip, would you? But... When more and more of these wounded soldiers kept pouring into the hospitals they were in charge of, especially in the wake of devastating battles like the Battle of Balaclava, the Battle of Inkerman, the doctors very quickly changed their tune, and Florence Nightingale was found to be a lot more welcome uh, in the hospitals uh, as they continued to be overcrowded with all these poor blokes who needed aid. And happily... Nightingale was able to make some very serious changes to the way that the hospitals were run, taking into account some of the most cutting-edge ideas in modern medicine. Things like, for instance, washing your hands. Uh, the ideas of those like Semmelweis, again, episode 91, get across it. Um, these ideas are gaining more and more traction. Nightingale, she wasn't necessarily a convert to things like germ theory. She was still happy to, you know, wash her hands while treating patients. And that's just the start of it, because... 
even the most basic hygiene measures, right, were overlooked by these practicing doctors back then. Nightingale, she was responsible for revolutionary changes. And you might laugh at this, but these changes really were revolutionary, making sure patients were given access to clean water and fresh air, making sure that sunlight was available to them in these hospitals. She insisted upon things like functioning drainage systems and a clean environment for patients to to, to convalesce in. Again, things that we take for granted. But back then, you just bung your patients onto some straw-covered floor and kind of hope they got better. But no, Nightingale wasn't going to accept that. Her focus on cleanliness, fresh air, clean water, proper sanitation systems, this brought attention to the environmental factors involved in nursing and have had a huge influence on healthcare right through to this very day. A lot of nursing, a lot of the success of nursing in the modern era is environmental. Hospitals these days are mostly bright and clean. Wards have windows and ventilations and ventilation systems. They have drains. And this stuff, it really makes a difference. And while all of these basic measures were being taken by Nightingale and her team, you'll never believe what she had the British government doing back at home. Writing to her friend Herbert and other government officials about the deplorable conditions and all the things that needed to be done to, to fix them, Nightingale somehow managed to get the government to build a brand new hospital for her to work in. But here's the thing about this hospital. It wasn't built in Scutari. It wasn't built in Constantinople where she was working. It was built in Britain, right? The famous British engineer Eisenbard Kingdom Brunel, he built, at the behest of the government, a prefabricated hospital, like a like a real-world life-size Lego set, right? Which was then shipped over to Constantinople and assembled there for Nightingale to work in. And this hospital, run, run under the authority of Florence Nightingale, it was known as Renkoi Hospital, it had a death rate of 2%. The old pre-Nightingale hospital, these military hospitals with the terrible hygiene, the poor resources, the overburdened staff, the overcrowding, these places saw 40% of their patients die, while Nightingale's new, clean, and carefully regulated and managed hospital had a death rate of 2%. Now, you can imagine what this enormous change did for, for Nightingale's reputation. Her ideas about and approaches to nursing were taken very seriously when these numbers came to light. And it wasn't just her professional reputation. We'll get more into that a little bit later. Her personal reputation only grew and grew as well because, like all good leaders, Nightingale, she was not afraid to get her hands dirty. She was not afraid to do the work that she required of others. In fact, she may have worked harder than anyone under her authority. Famously, Nightingale is known to have gone from bed to bed, from bed, to bed individually checking on patients throughout the night holding a small lamp as she made sure those in her charge were were being cared for. And this earned her the nickname, The Lady with the Lamp, a moniker that is still attached to her this very day. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Due to Nightingale's efforts throughout the Crimean War, she almost single-handedly revolutionised nursing and the way that hospitalised patients were treated. Just as in 1853, newspapers had told of the horrific conditions in British hospitals over in the East, in 1855, they were now telling of the incredible work Nightingale had done and how much things had changed. Nightingale was hailed as a hero, both locally and back home in Britain, as you can imagine. However, I will say, Sadly, it wasn't all positive for Nightingale uh, because she was stationed in, as I say, she was stationed in Scutari in Constantinople, but she did pay a few personal visits to the fronts, to Crimea itself. And during one of these visits, she uh, she herself fell ill, quite ill, in fact, um, with uh, what was known then as Crimean fever, but today is thought to be brucellosis. Um, she probably drank some off milk and it made her very sick. Uh, She had a slow and unpleasant recovery, and even after she had made something of a recovery, the effects of this disease lingered throughout more or less the rest of her life, causing her pain and fatigue for decades and decades, the poor bugger. But uh, luckily, back in Scutari, she had a team of very well-trained and devoted nurses who were ready and willing to look after her. But all the same, her recovery throughout 1855 was not pleasant. But before we wrap up the story of the Crimean War and before Nightingale heads back home to Britain in 1856, um, there is something else, or someone else, really, that I want to uh, to briefly touch upon here. Because Nightingale, she hadn't been the only one who had headed east to help out after the outbreak of the Crimean War. In early 1855, a woman named Mary Seacole arrived in Crimea itself, not in Constantinople, but in, in Crimea, determined to do the same thing as Nightingale, easing the suffering and caring for the British who are fighting in this war. Now, Mary Seacole's story is uh, very complex and very difficult to accurately tell. The long and the, the long and the short of it is that she she seems to have set up a hotel rather than a hospital, and she tended to focus on looking after the British officers that were wounded rather than the common soldiers that had been sent back to Scutari. Now, some characterise C. Cole as more of an entrepreneur than a nurse coming over, setting up a, a business rather than a house of healing. And uh, some accounts of her role are, in contrast to Nightingale, perhaps we can say um, less than complimentary. Now, why is this, right? Why are people coming down on C. Cole in this way, going over there, earning herself some money by setting up a, a hotel and, and selling food and drink and looking after officers that were wounded? Well, 
the 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 base the baseline reason for why Seacole cops it sweet from uh, from a lot of historians is undoubtedly that she was black and she was as a result the victim both in her time and in the years afterwards uh, the victim of horrific racist thinking and racist revisionist uh, characterizations of the role that she played in Crimea. Uh, at the time, she was denied access to government funds to support her efforts, unlike Nightingale, presumably, again, because of the colour of her skin. And because of a lot of the prejudice that surrounds the story of Seacole, both back then and even today, honestly, um, it's very difficult to accurately tell Seacole's story. Uh, there are such wildly varying accounts of what she did over there in Crimea. According to some, she worked tirelessly to feed and care for the wounded and the sick British officers, bringing them food and drink as they recovered and helping to tend to their wounds. But then... According to others, Seacole was essentially just there to make money, selling food and drink and accommodation to anyone and everyone who was over in Crimea, including those who were, unbelievably, just there to watch the battles. But I will note that those who are the most critical of Seacole are also amongst Nightingale's loudest supporters. So, aside from the whole racist aspect, which certainly plays into Seacole's lasting legacy, uh, there does seem to be a bit of zero-sum thinking going on. Um, in other words, in any reputation that Seacole has comes at the expense of Nightingale. It's not as if both of them could have helped in their own ways. No, there's this us-versus-them mentality that gets brought into talking about these two women. I, I, I spent a fair bit of time looking into Seacole and Nightingale and, and, and their respective, uh, the respective roles they played in Crimea, and maybe this is a cop-out, but I have to admit, it's just too complex for me to be able to fairly and accurately sum up, particularly the relationship between the two women. They met, um, and according to their own words, they they both seem to have felt pretty positively about the other. They seem to respect one another. But then there are these secondary sources that claim that Seacole attempted to work with Nightingale, and Nightingale rebuffed her because of her race. But then others say that it wasn't because of not because of Seacole's race, but because she enabled and encouraged drunkenness and chaos. And then on top of this, it's not clear that any of these claims are actually accurate in the first place. None seem to have been thoroughly verified. So I, I really just don't know. Over the years, the relationship between these two women has been recharacterized, perhaps mischaracterized by historical commentators, with many saying that their relationship was actually filled with animosity and dislike. So again, I'm sorry if this is a cop-out, but the Nightingale-Seacole issue is filled with so many complex, controversial, and difficult-to-briefly-summarise issues, gender-based issues, race-based issues, issues revolving around modern-day proponents for the two women scrabbling for what they perceive to be a zero-sum reputational status. I didn't want to just ignore this completely. I didn't want to cop out altogether and just gloss over Seacole and, and her relationship and her place in Nightingale's story. But I have to be honest and say that this is a historical controversy that at the very least warrants its own episode and in reality would probably need a whole podcast series to get to the bottom of. Anyway... The Crimean War, it ended in 1856. Russia lost and not only had to forfeit a fair bit of territory, but also had to deal with being greatly weakened on the international stage. Their loss in the Crimean War led to efforts to modernise Russia, the abolition of serfdom, huge reforms across the, the military, the economy and the society of the Russian Empire. It really did change Russia forever, although 
Not in some ways, because Russia is, even today, still seemingly aggressively expansionist. It's a a great shame. But the other thing that that the Crimean War did, for the British at least, was to set the ball rolling for the professionalization of medicine. And this was principally due to the efforts of Nightingale and the results that she'd wrought while looking after soldiers as the war was being fought. Nightingale headed back to Britain after the war concluded in 1856, still weakened by the brucellosis that she had suffered. Um, But she returned to a nation that was all of a sudden very, very ready to listen to what she had to say. Which is fortunate, because Nightingale was very prepared to share her thoughts. uh, And she was prepared, backed up with meticulously kept and inventively presented data. Remember earlier on the uh, on the episode how I said Nightingale had a thing for statistics and data. Remember how I said she was a a pioneer of the of the visual representation of this data. Well, here's where this really took off. Because another thing that we take for granted, in addition to you know clean hospitals and trained nurses, we take for granted all the ways that you can visually present data these days. No one likes pouring through spread. Well. Some of us like to pour through spreadsheets. Some of us actually really got off in it. But honestly, look, yeah, we don't need to get too into it. Spreadsheets, as wonderful as they can be, they're not always the most captivating way to express data. And, uh, you know, it's it's often difficult to get your point across when you're looking at a big table of numbers. People sometimes have trouble understanding what the numbers are telling you. Nightingale, with this in mind, and with the mind that she had for numbers, she adapted existing visual data representation methods in in new ways to express to people just how deadly disease and illness had been over in the military hospitals that she'd worked in and how she and her colleagues had changed things. You can go online and you can see the graphs and the charts that Nightingale herself produced. She's uh, most famously associated with a thing called the circular histogram. It's just a bar chart arranged in a circle, kind of like a weird pie chart. Um, And while she didn't invent these data representation methods, she put them to use like never before. These graphs and these charts were instrumental in having people actually understand the numbers they represented. Important, powerful people who could actually make decisions and changes based on the information that that these charts presented. Like whom, you may be wondering, who are these important and powerful people? Well, How about the most important and the most powerful person of the entire age, the person after whom this era is named, Queen Victoria herself? Episode 208, get across it. In September 1856, six months after the war ended, Nightingale made a personal presentation to the Queen, herself, in person, imploring Victoria to reform the British approach to medicine and healthcare. And in doing this, she was aided by her trusty graphs and charts and with, as I say, meticulous records that she kept while she was out east, Nightingale was able to build an effortlessly convincing case about the need to reform and improve and professionalise the British medical industry, particularly when it came to the military. And to cut a long story short, it worked. A royal commission was established, it investigated Nightingale's claims and data, and it found that she did, in fact, well and truly know what she was talking about. The reforms that the British undertook were particularly significant, of course, because this was the period during which the British Empire was at or around its peak in terms of global power and influence. So these British reforms that were rolled out in the coming years, they were felt 
throughout the empire, throughout the world, in other words, and their effects did not go ignored by other powerful nations who, in many cases, followed suit. All of the things that Nightingale insisted were instrumental in successful nursing from proper hygiene to administrative efficiency, they became the hallmarks of modern medical services. But quite aside from revolutionising medical care around the world, there are a couple of other things that Nightingale changed when it came to nursing. Uh, First of all, she changed the way that these principles were accessed by people. Because while she's off rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous, giving personal presentations to the Queen herself about what needed to change, Nightingale also put all of this information into the hands of common people. In 1859, Nightingale published an immensely important book called Notes on Nursing, What It Is and What It Is Not. And this book was groundbreaking in that it brought the fundamental principles of nursing and caring for the sick into the hands of everyday, ordinary people. This book talked about the importance of hygiene and cleanliness and fresh air and clean water and drainage and ventilation and everything else Nightingale had learned from her time in Constantinople. And even today, according to nursing experts, this book is as relevant as ever. While medical technology may have progressed, you know, a little bit here and there since 1859, these fundamental principles, as I say, put forth by Nightingale, they remain as true today as they ever were. It is very, very difficult to write a book about anything at all and have it remain largely unchanged in terms of relevance across a period of nearly 200 years. But that is what was done by Florence Nightingale. Notes on Nursing is one of the reasons that Nightingale is considered to be the founder of modern nursing. But it's only half the reason, as we come to the second thing that Nightingale changed about nursing as a profession. Back in 1855, when, as I said before, newspapers were talking about the successes that she had had while over in Constantinople, a fund was set up for Nightingale called the Nightingale Fund. It was very well named. It was established to help her with her work, to train nurses using her ideas. And I'll tell you this, people opened their bloody wallets right up. After returning to Britain and rubbing shoulders with royalty, Nightingale was given £45,000. In today's money, that is over £6 million. She was given this money to establish a training facility for nurses. And so, in 1860... The Nightingale School of Nursing at St. Thomas's Hospital opened in London and again revolutionised the way that nurses were trained and how they worked in hospitals. Nurses now received training that wasn't just specialised, it wasn't just formalised, but it was also secular. Caring for the sick wasn't inherently tied to religion anymore, although even today the religious legacy is felt in some hospital settings, uh, especially in instances where senior nurses are sometimes referred to as sister. But British people everywhere benefited from these newly trained secular nurses, especially amongst the poorer classes. Because if you were poor and sick, if you're working in in, in a Victorian-era British workhouse, right, you had to rely on friends or family to look after you. And chances are, they were poor as well. And so not not only are you getting poorer because you can't work, but they're getting poorer too because they can't work while they look after you. But now, dedicated professional nurses were deployed to these workhouses to to, to take care of the paupers who worked there. I'm certainly not trying to defend the workhouse system, not trying to extol its virtues, but 
at least the poor people who worked in them were given proper medical care, rather than just essentially being left to die penniless. But in addition to improving healthcare everywhere by making better trained and more competent nurses accessible for people, the Nightingale School also changed the way, most importantly, I think, that nurses were perceived. Because, as you remember from the beginning of this episode, nursing was not, largely speaking, seen as a hugely respectable or dignified or even valid profession before Nightingale came along. You remember, her family were very resistant to the idea of her going off to care for the sick and the needy, but she did it all the same, despite it being something, being seen as something at least, that, that should be well and truly beneath her as a wealthy woman. But now, the Queen and the Queen's money was behind the profession, and so was this famous Lady of the Lamp, more or less a celebrity in Victorian era. And as a result of this, young women were able to take up the profession of nursing without being looked down upon. Nightingale was able to break free from the societal expectations that hindered her as a wealthy woman, and in doing so, helped to normalise nursing as a legitimate profession that women could respectably enter into. Now, while women today still fight for equality in the workplace, women back in Nightingale's time, they were fighting to get into a workplace in the first place, held back by ideas about, you know, home being the only place for a woman. Nightingale herself saw nursing as a way for women to gain a level of societal empowerment and and mobility in a time when women's rights were close to non-existent. Women could seek to build something of a career as nurses in a profession that was becoming seen as more respectable, more legitimate, more necessary than ever before. Now, nursing is still a profession that is overwhelmingly dominated by women today, and For better or worse, so much of that is because of the origins of professional nursing kicked off by Nightingale and her reform efforts. Efforts that were, largely speaking, immensely successful, I think it's fair to say. Nursing today is an essential profession, with practitioners spread all around the world working unbelievably hard to ease the suffering of the sick and the injured. And I'm not just saying that because I'll get in trouble with mum if I don't. Nursing has got to be one of the hardest and most underappreciated professions on the face of the planet. And unfortunately, like so many other professions that are overwhelmingly populated by women, nurses are overworked, they are underpaid, and they still don't get the respect that they deserve for the work that they do. Anyway, throughout the, uh, throughout the 1860s, Nightingale continued to work as a powerful advocate for the nursing profession, uh, suffering, even as she did, from the after-effects of the brucellosis that she'd contracted in Crimea. This left her bedridden much of the time. But even then, she didn't rest. She would constantly work on things like hospital designs or administrative and organisational improvements. She never stopped working. In the 1870s, for instance, she personally trained a woman named Linda Richards, uh, who is sometimes referred to as America's first trained nurse, Uh, Richards took Nightingale's ideas back to the US. She propagated them over there. And later life, as the legacy of Nightingale's work became more and more obvious with declining death rates and increased efficiency across the developing British healthcare industry, Nightingale was showered with awards. She was the first ever recipient of the Royal Red Cross, an award instituted by Queen Victoria to recognise military nurses like like Nightingale. It It is still awarded to this very day. She was also the first ever woman to receive the British Order of Merit. But sadly, in time, 
Nightingale's health only declined, and as she got older, her vision began to fail, and uh, her mental and cognitive capacities began to deteriorate as well. She lived to the very respectable age of 90, finally dying on the 13th of August, 1910, by which time, of course, the reforms that she had inspired to nursing and healthcare were in place all around the world. Florence Nightingale lived an immensely important life, and much of the way that the modern medical industry operates is due to her actions and her ideas. Her relentless pursuit of data-driven truth and her ability to express that truth in ways that were compelling and persuasive brought about a revolution in medical care, one that also aided women in seeking out new professional opportunities that weren't available to them before. It is very, very difficult to argue that Nightingale's legacy is anything other than extremely positive. This woman changed the world for the better in multiple different ways, from healthcare to the role of women to bloody graphs and charts, mate. Talk about a life well lived. You might have heard of the Hippocratic Oath, an oath taken by some doctors and physicians as they enter the profession. Well, even today, new nurses, particularly in the United States, they recite the Nightingale Pledge, adapted from the Hippocratic Oath and designed to guide nurses as they work and adhere to the principles laid out by the founder of their modern profession, a woman who is still rightly honoured today, Florence Nightingale. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Florence Nightingale. And I do hope you enjoyed getting across it just as much as I did. I'll tell you what, I'm really pandering to the uh, to the mum demographic at the moment. It was tennis last week. It's nursing this week. What's it going to be next week? Bloody jigsaw puzzles and homegrown, <laughs> homegrown vegetables. Anyway, I, I hope you enjoyed it. And I, specifically you, mum, I hope you enjoyed it, especially after a, a lifetime of, uh, of all the hard work you did as a nurse holding beating hearts during uh, during theatre operations. And, you know, this, here's the thing. My mum, right, she, she was a theatre nurse. She saw the insides of I don't know how many thousands of people across her entire career, right? But then one time I, like, I, I, I cut my leg quite badly. It needed stitches. And mum nearly fainted when she saw it. This is a woman who has done, like, lung transplants and stuff. But her son getting a cut in the leg, oh, too much for her. Anyway... Good on you, Mum, and good on you, all the other nurses out there working so hard to uh, to keep us alive and, and well and, and safe in hospitals. Um, I do have immense respect for nurses, as you'd expect, being, having been brought up by one. So uh, hopefully this was an interesting episode for any nurses out there to listen to, learn a little bit more about the origins of your profession. If you know a nurse who's out there who might be interested to learn more about uh, about Florence Nightingale and, and nursing, please, by all means, send this episode on to them if they're your friend, if they're your enemy. If they're a person you feel, well, you shouldn't feel largely ambivalent about them. They're a nurse. So I think the baseline there is pretty high uh, for, in terms of how much respect you owe them. Uh, so uh, send them this episode and see what they reckon. Anyway, a couple of people I want to thank. First of all, I want to thank all uh, all the patrons who have signed up uh, just this week, as well as all the old ones as well who have stuck around uh, for the long haul. But a couple of new faces joining the, the ranks of the Exalted Patrons this week. We've got Jack Phillips, uh, Kathy Hasseldean. Kiara Kemi, or Semi, not sure about that one. Kiara, in any case, sorry about that. Uh, good to have you along. And Ola S also uh, signing up as well. So thank you so very much. If you want to join their Exalted Ranks, patreon.com slash half history, uh, and you can sign up and gain access, as these four have done. Ola, Kiara, Kathy, and Jack, they're all enjoying uh, 
ad-free listening, uncut episodes, uh, show notes, all sorts of stuff. Uh, perhaps some of them uh, getting some merch sent their way at no extra cost, depending on the tier that you sign up at. There's uh, various merch items that will be sent out to you. But I also want to thank every each and every other listener uh, who is bearing with the podcast as it under, undergoes some changes. I uh, posted a I was going to say a quick update. wasn't nothing quick about it. But if you go back and have a listen to uh, the update that I, I posted about some of the changes you're going to hear uh, when it comes to the show, N- nothing too huge. Just the the, the nature and um, frequency of some of the ads. Uh, I'm putting a cap at six per episode, uh, four for the shorter episodes. And you might start hear, hearing me read out some ads as well. And uh, I said it in that update, and I'll say it again here. Very, very earnestly, very, very uh, genuinely do want your feedback. If there is anything about the ads and the changes that I made that are distasteful to you or not to your liking, please let me know. Uh, Your feedback is instrumental in making sure this show remains as successful as it has been. So if something rubs you the wrong way, please let me know and I'll do what I can. Uh, I can't make promises. I only have uh, sort of... uh, topic level control over the pre-recorded ads that play whereas my ads obviously I the, the, the ones that I'll read I have a little bit more say over what goes in and what doesn't but again I do want to I do want to hear how they're uh, how they're sitting with you and uh, in case you also missed that announcement there are some exciting things coming with half house history I am working very very hard it is extremely difficult but I'm doing my best to try to get a book published and I also announced the fact that there will be hopefully a half hour history live show or live shows even uh, before the end of this year, all going well. Again, don't know how difficult it's going to be. Uh, I'm talking to, I'm having conversations with various people who are going to help me uh, set this this sort of stuff up. But um, I've had some questions about where they might be. Overwhelmingly, probably Melbourne, uh, Sydney, if there's a second one. But apart uh, outside of that, then obviously I'll be looking to come to uh, other Australian capitals and uh, overseas potentially in the future if uh, if there's enough demand for it overseas i'd love to do that but uh look as someone who is a fan of podcasts and and does enjoy the recordings of live podcasts that are that are done uh by these podcasts that i listen to uh, i have every intention uh, i don't want to make promises in case there are things that unforeseen obstacles that get in the way of that but at this stage i have every intention if i do any live shows i'll also be recording them and uh, and posting them on the feed so you can listen to them um for a couple of reasons. One, I don't want to, uh, I don't want you to miss out. And two, save me a week of having to record an episode, baby. Let's go. That's just, uh, just being efficient. So, uh, yeah, no, look forward to that. Uh, it's something that I'm hoping to get done again, uh, hopefully this calendar year. And if not, by the end of the year, I'll have firm plans for, uh, for where, when, when it's coming up. So a book, a tour, um, and flip side of that, more ads. Hope it's okay. Uh, for more details, have a listen to that other, that other uh, update. Anyway. That is that for this week. Um, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you back here next week. Um, some big episodes coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you're not going to want to miss them. There are episodes that have been uh, a long time in the making. So uh, you, uh, I imagine particularly people on the other side of the Tasman will, uh, will be pricking up their ears at the stuff that's coming uh, because I promised these episodes a long time ago and uh, they're now finally, I think I'm in a position to finally deliver on them. So keep an ear out in the coming weeks uh, for some more history from uh, from the other side of the ditch, some more Kiwi history for you to look forward to. But until then, my friends, leaving you, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Redditor Sibua, who asks, In addition to all the qualifications you need to become a nurse, do theatre nurses also have to study drama?
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.